The views and opinions expressed by guests on this program are not necessarily the views of Thinking Bigger Business Media, Inc. or its employees. Welcome to Smart Companies Thinking Bigger Radio. Get the inside scoop on how America's most successful business owners transform their entrepreneurial vision into reality. And listen in as some of the top business minds in the country serve up practical advice, tips, and insights for growing your business. Now here's your host, Kelly Scanlon. Good morning. Welcome to Smart Companies Radio. I'm Kelly Scanlon, publisher of Thinking Bigger Business Media. Our guest today is Blake Masters. Blake is the co-founder of Judicata, a legal research technology startup, and he's also the co-author of a popular book called Zero to One, Notes on Startups or How to Build the Future. Blake was a student at Stanford Law School in 2012 when his notes on Peter Thiel's class became an internet sensation. We're going to talk about that in a minute. But in case you don't recognize Peter's name, he is the co-founder of PayPal, and he was the first outside investor in in Facebook. Blake's here to talk to us today about the book Zero to One. Welcome to the show today, Blake. Hey, thanks for having me, Kelly. Yes. Now, as I mentioned, you co-wrote Zero to One with Peter Thiel. Now, give us the background on that. I said that you were a student in his class, but how did that turn into a book? You being in his class, and then what happened between that and the book being sure. produced? Yeah, there's actually a little bit of prehistory. It wasn't the first class that I'd taken with Peter. Um, so my second year in law school in 2011, Peter came and taught a seminar. Uh, I think it was called Sovereignty, Technology, and Globalization. But uh, it was a really cool class. You know, you'd have us reading Machiavelli one week and then talking about peak oil theory next week, uh, you know, talking about China the week after that. So it was kind of this eclectic assortment of everything that was on his mind. Um, and it all sort of started to, to integrate and make sense, and you got the sense that Peter was kind of a really unique and special thinker. Um, but as cool as the class was, I can't tell you any more about it because I don't <laughs> remember. Uh, I, didn't, I didn't take any notes, as was my habit all through college and law school. I'm not a big note taker. But uh, Peter and I became friends, and then I, I worked with him a little bit that summer at his venture capital firm, Founders Fund. And so when he was thinking about teaching this next class, uh, the class on startups, he emailed me and uh, and told me to keep an eye out for it in case I might want to take it. Um, so I decided to take it, and uh, you know it was the last last class I ever took at Stanford. And this time I was sure from uh, from you know class number one to take really detailed notes. Mm-hmm. Um, so I that that was sort of the impetus for the project. And then you know once I have these notes, uh, I was looking at them and sort of saying, well, gee, it's kind of a shame if uh, if nobody outside of the classroom gets to gets to read these thoughts and learn from them. So I decided to kind of take a gamble and post them online. Ah, so you posted them online and full attribution, I'm sure, to Peter? Yeah, yeah. There was no, uh, you know, and I I think I said, like, you know, credit for all the good ideas Mm -hmm. goes to Peter, but, you know, mistakes, errors, and omissions are mine. Um, (laughs) So it was clear exactly what they were, but but it's totally true. I uh, I didn't check in with him beforehand or anything like that. And then somehow, how did the book come about, though? Well, the notes became uh, really popular. Um, you know, I thought a few hundred people in Silicon Valley might might be interested in in hearing this stuff, kind of filtered through uh, a random student's blog. But it turns out they were they were wildly popular. Um, within a year, they had like five hundred thousand unique visitors and uh, over a million page views. And so, sort of everybody 
you know, Mark Andreessen, a really prominent uh, venture capitalist mm-hmm. out here in Silicon Valley, has said pretty much everybody who comes to pitch him for money for, for his or her startup has read the notes. So it really became this kind of Silicon Valley phenomenon where everybody was, was reading these, uh, these notes essays and discussing them. And then, uh, so we thought that was really cool. We also knew, uh, well, we knew two things. One, that uh, we could make the writing just a lot better. You know, I mean, this is stuff I took down in class and then lightly edited. Uh, and so we, we knew we could make uh, a lot better product, you know, mm-hmm. sort of the best presentation of these ideas. And two, we knew that as even in 2014, as influential as blogs and social media are, um, there's nothing really better than writing a book to, to both clarify your own thinking and also to start a wider cultural conversation. So we knew the notes didn't yet reach everyone we wanted to speak to. And, uh, you know, so we started talking with some New York publishers and just tried to make a, a big splash as we could. So we have the book, Zero to One. What does Zero to One mean? Yeah, so Zero to One means uh, in our sort of taxonomy, doing new things. Uh, we contrast it with going from one to N, which is copying more of what already exists. And so one way to look at it, uh, we, we say zero to one uh, means technology. You do something new, you do it for the first time, uh, you do more with less, whereas one to N uh, means globalization. So that's where you take something that's worked in the West and you sort of make it work in all, all sorts of emerging countries or different contexts. And, uh, you know, to have a good 21st century, we're going to have to have both technology and globalization, both types of progress. Um, we wrote Zero to One because we think that when people talk about progress, uh, we, we conflate it with globalization. We pretend sort of by default that the only way to, to make progress is to, to spread what we already know how to do. Right. Um, what we want Silicon Valley to be about, what we want uh, you know, a whole generation of new businesses to be about is really doing something uh, new, something sort of transcendent that the world has never seen before. Right. And I believe in the book you use China as an example of the globalization, that they're t- replicating what's worked in the West. They're trying to have that, all of that recur in China. And uh, you also talk about horizontal versus vertical growth. And you're really talking about the same thing, right? right. When you're talking at zero to one, horizontal growth would be globalization. Vertical growth would be the technological innovation. Yeah, exactly. So many people talk about about China, and uh, you know, there's always this from the American perspective. There's always this um, seems like there's this pervasive fear that wow, China is growing at 10% a year. You know, we're only growing at 2%, maybe 3% in a good year. This is really bad. China's going to overtake us. But it's easy to forget that China can grow so fast only because its starting base is so low. They don't really have to worry about innovation. Um, you know, for the for the next 10, 15, 20 years. They really do just have to copy what has worked in the West, right? Um, and that's that's sufficient to grow. Uh, you know what what Western Europe, what the U.S., what Japan have have to worry about is actually doing something new. So, so uh, you know, from from our perspective over here, it's you know <laughs> there is nothing to copy. You know, mm-hmm. um, if you live in the developed world, so to speak, uh, you really have to look for all these opportunities to go from zero to one if you kind of want to take things to the next level. Right. I, you know, the the new and improved Cheerios or, or cornflakes doesn't cut it by adding berries to it. That, that's not what you're talking about here. Right. It may be nice. Uh, you know, so maybe some people should be working on that. Um, but but if, if as a society we sort of default to, to just doing things like that, then we'll be in a lot of trouble. So at the root of one of the book's most controversial messages is the advice 
that you give entrepreneurs, and that's that they should avoid competition wherever possible, and instead they should aspire to be monopolies. Now, is that really as black and white as it sounds? Uh, well, yes and no. There is a sense in which we're, um, we're being intentionally provocative. Uh, we're, we're sort of taking these labels that people use in one context, and we're pointing out uh, a sort of a more sane context for them. So competition, Americans really like. You know, we're competitive. Yes. We like we kind of conflate competition with free market capitalism. So in some sense, if you're anti-competition, you know, um, conjures up images of sort of, you know, smoke-filled rooms and monopolists plotting against the people or the government sort of keeping, you know, entrance out of a market, all of which we know to be bad. Uh, what we mean when we say competition is bad is that, uh, you know, if you're competing, you have a referent competitor. You're always defining what you're doing in relation to somebody else. But the, the best, most transformative companies uh, are sort of so different and so unique that they wind up escaping competition. They're not worried about what the other person is doing. They're worried about whether what they're doing is technically possible or how they're going to do it. Uh, and so what we say to entrepreneurs is you want to be a monopoly. You want to do something uh, so unique and so good that nobody else can hope to do the same thing. Um, you know, the, one of the definitions or, or examples we give is Google, mm-hmm. which uh, in the late 1990s, the search engine market was really competitive, it was sort of Lycos and AltaVista, and then there was Yahoo and Microsoft, and they were all just sort of okay. And then Google comes along with its PageRank algorithm, built a whole great company around the search engine that is just so much better than anybody. Uh, and so now I think Google has like 70% of the U.S. market share. It seems like more than that. But Google, for all practical purposes, has a monopoly. There's nobody that can compete with search in Google. And that's been really uh, it's been great for Google, of course. But it's been, it's been really good for the world, too, because there's just now we have it's, it's a new category of abundance, you know, a search engine that works. So from a business perspective, you always want to be a monopolist. Uh, sometimes that's even good for, for society at large, at least in the dynamic economy. But what we, what we tend to do in business and, and everything, because this is part of human nature, is we tend to look at what other people are doing, and we tend to copy it. And so uh, it's always worth remembering that dynamic because, because we're sort of all guilty of falling into it. Yes. And I think you call it, I'm going to botch the word, but I think you call it the mim- mimicist or uh, there's, there's some, you know, where you mimic uh, yeah. others and, and yeah. you have the term Mimesis, that you use. Uh, yes. mim- mimetic phenomena. Um, right. You know, it's like... Already in the time of Shakespeare, uh, the word ape meant both primate and to imitate. Hmm. So, so this is, you know, sort of mimetic uh, dynamics or competitive dynamics. Uh, they're, they're part of human nature. And it's actually, you know, I mean, hey, that's how babies learn languages. They yes. look at what parents are doing and they sort of ape them. Uh, it's how culture is transmitted. Um, so it's not all bad. I mean, it is just a, a fact of life. But it really can, I think, blind people. To, um, to, you know, new sources of value, new ways of doing things. Um, you know, it's like Peter likes to, to point out kind of a, a funny little point here, but, but so many of these, these tech entrepreneurs in Silicon Valley uh, that have really cool companies seem to suffer from, from like a mild form of Asperger's, you know, mm-hmm. um, where, uh, and, and we always like to flip this around and, and turn it into an indictment of society. What does it say about society when socially well-adjusted people, when people who don't have Asperger's uh, wind up having all their original thoughts sort of, you know, driven out of them before they're even fully formed? Because if you are well-adjusted, 
you know, and you have kind of a crazy idea, you're going to, you're going to pick up on all these subtle cues from people. Oh, that idea is too crazy. You know, you shouldn't do that. You should do something more safe. And so if you think mm-hmm. of like a Harvard business school as the anti Asperger's crowd, you know, these are sure. people with, with extreme extroverts, uh, you know, very good at sales and they kind of sit in a hothouse environment for two years and they don't know what to do. So they talk about, you know, with each other, what are we going to do? And it's, it's kind of funny because this, there's this, you know, like every sort of year, the biggest crop of people at Harvard Business School tends to go into like the wrong field. They try to catch the last wave because mm-hmm. that's what's popular. So in 1989, sure. they wanted to work with Michael Milken, you know, the junk bond king before he went to jail. Yes. Um, they never cared about technology until, uh, you know, 99, 2000, when they topped the, uh, they, they called the top of the, the dot-com bubble perfectly. In 2005, it was all private equity and real estate, and then that sort of crashed. And so if we just look at what other people are doing, you know, it's, on the one hand, that is, what, that is what people do. On the other hand, that's what creates all sorts of bubbles and psychosocial deno- uh, phenomena. But if you wanted to do a, a, a really good company, um, you know, like an Airbnb or a Facebook, you can't just look around at what other people are doing and then try to make a better version. You really have to be sort of independent enough, intellectually independent enough socially uh, to, to go and actually think that you've got some niche and it doesn't have to be popular, but but you know what? You're going to make a great company out of it. Exactly. And it might take a little while for it to catch on because it's not popular and because you might have to educate people a little bit. But long term, uh, you've created something entirely different. We're going to take a quick break. When we get back, we're going to be talking with Blake about uh, some of the other ways of thinking that produce this innovative uh, environment. You're listening to Smart Companies Radio on Blog Talk Radio. We'll be right back. It's the smartest party of the year. Thinking Bigger Business Media will turn a spotlight on some of the city's most innovative and forward-thinking entrepreneurs with its annual Smart Companies to Watch publication and party, Thursday, December 5th, from 5.30 till 7.30 p.m. at the downtown Marriott Mealbach Hotel. Hors d'oeuvres, including a carving station and drinks, will be served. That's Thinking Bigger Business Media's annual Smart Companies to Watch Party, December 5th at the Mealbach. Register at ithinkbigger.com today. Profile America, Friday, October 31st. There's an excellent chance that today is an occasion deeply revered by young children and the nation's candy makers. According to ancient Celtic tradition, Halloween, the evening before All Saints Day, is a time of haunting by ghosts. Halloween has come a long way from pagan practices to trick-or-treat. Today's prank and costume-filled observance goes back about a century, and giving the disguised young visitors to the doorstep some candies has been a major part of the ritual. This is an important boost to the nation's nearly 72,000 retailers with candy displays including more than 3,300 confectionery and nut stores. Candy sales amount to about $5.5 billion annually. You can find more facts about America's people, places, and economy from the American Community Survey at census.gov. Good morning. Welcome back to Smart Companies Radio. I'm Kelly Scanlon, publisher of Thinking Bigger Business Media. We're visiting here today with Blake Masters, who is the co-author, along with Peter Thiel, of Zero to One, Notes on Startups or How to Build the Future. And we've been talking about uh, the the types of of, uh, 
innovations that are needed in order to create our future as opposed to just replicating things that are already working or things that are already successful. And one of the things I like about your book, besides just the content in general, is that you have really fun chapter titles. One of those is that you're not a lottery ticket. What in the heck does lottery have to do with what we're talking about here today? Yeah, so I think that one of the biggest questions in business is always uh, how much how much can you actually plan? How much can you set out to succeed and then succeed? Or, you know, how much is it just luck? Mm-hmm. Um, so it's easy to sort of say, oh, Zuckerberg won the lottery, you know, and if this, this incredible constellation of facts and events didn't happen, you know, if he wasn't rooming with uh, Eduardo at Harvard or if his girlfriend didn't dump him that night, he would never have created this this business or Bill Gates, you know, didn't, didn't grow up with Paul Allen. Maybe he never would have started Microsoft. And so this lottery ticket chapter is, is our sort of, uh, you know, contribution to this luck versus skill question. I think on the whole, we have as a society, you know, in the last 30, 40 years, really come down hard on the side of luck. We, we prefer to explain things uh, at least largely, if not predominantly, um, in terms of chance, in terms of statistics, in terms of, of luck. And, and I think we underweight uh, the importance of planning and skill and design. And I do think this is a big cultural shift. So, you know, 100 years ago in, in, in business, people knew that misfortune existed, but you never focused on it. It was always, okay, you could get unlucky, mm-hmm. but hey, let's carve out the sphere of, uh, you know, mastery that we can achieve and, and let's get it done. Um, and today, I don't know if it's it's part of this, uh, you know, sort of inequality debate or or, or resentment at, at, at sort of widening inequality, but there is a sense in which people are rushing to sort of say you can't know anything in advance. It is all a matter of luck. We have sort of the lean startup phenomenon, which is which is sort of adjacent to all this. It says that entrepreneurs are, are never supposed to know in advance what their companies are going to do. Right? You have to make a minimum viable product sort of iterate your way to success, um, it's all very indefinite. And so, so we think, uh, you know, as a society, certainly as a, as a, as a business person, uh, it's imperative to have a, a definite attitude and kind of correct more in that direction. You know, this isn't exactly the same as what you're talking about, but I think it goes hand in hand in terms of what determines uh, people who can think like a Steve Jobs or a, a Zuckerberger, and that is – Education. Can this kind of thinking be taught? And obviously, it's not luck. You've talked about that, but can it be taught? You know, it probably can't be taught in the way that we in the way that we first think of when we when we talk about teaching something. Um, I think when we talk about you know teaching today or school today, uh, I mean, what we're really doing is like teaching the need to be taught about everything, which is to say, like, I think in a lot of ways. You know, school is, is one to end. It's taking this, this set of conventional truths and it's imparting them, you know, onto sort of impressionable minds. Um, it's it's not about teaching people how to how to think, even though that's the you know go to kind of cliche that's used to describe higher education. Um, you can't teach this perspective anymore that you can you know teach someone to be creative. Um, what you can do is set up a set up a, a culture where, where that's what's going on. Um, you know, so in the past, you know, back when, when the government was definite, you got Apollo and, uh, you know, you got the interstate highway system, you got the Manhattan Project. Today, we can't even build, you know, the, the Affordable Health Care Act website. Right. Uh, a great example. It, yeah. 
so so you know you can you can teach somebody all these all these skills but it's really hard to to teach someone uh or, or even teach a, a set of people you know the importance of being definite because um it's hard to know what that would look like. It really is an attitude. Uh, some people are always going to have it, even in our indefinite climate. You have you have Steve Jobs type figures, you know, not enough of them, um, but but you do have them. And so I think it's worth asking, where is this coming from? Why uh, why are we seeing it, you know, so rarely? And is there something about our schooling system that's actually beating out all sorts of definite perspectives, all sorts of kind of crazy ambitions out of people, um, you know, so that they may be you know, more homogenous and kind of fit into existing institutions more cleanly. One of the the things that you bring up in your book, I mean, with all the technology that, uh, you know, there's all this buzz about technology, as there should be, but one of the things that is coming out of that is that eventually we won't need to send people to the workplace because we will have machines or we'll have robots or we'll have avatars or whatever it is doing all of these things for us and people will rise to some higher plane, I suppose, and do things that are more meaningful than work every day. What do you think about that? Do you think we'll see a time like that? Probably not just like that. I mean, I think there's always going to be uh, plenty of work for humans to do. Um, our sort of cut on this is, you know, most people think, uh, most people kind of approach these these debates um, from a, a mildly fearful perspective. So yes. it's kind of like, is the robot going to take my job? Uh, am I safe or am I in this class that's at least going to be a few decades away from being replaced. And actually, I think if you were worried about being replaced, um, you should worry about other people. Because, you know, if you think in terms of sort of economic terms, comparative advantage, comparative advantage is, is huge um, when, when people are really different. You know, so if you're really good at making shoes and I'm really good at, you know, hunting or something like that, uh, then we have a huge advantage. If you focus on shoes, I focus on the hunt, and then we trade. If if we're kind of the same at everything, uh, or maybe you're just a little bit better at making shoes than I'm at hunting, there's not not as huge advantage uh, to to trade. And so when you look at the global population of human workers who are like willing to do repetitive tasks for low wages, well, the you know Chinese or, or Indians really can substitute for Americans in that sense. And so I think you have you know, with globalization, you have enormous pressures on, on the job market and displacement. We've seen some of that um, over the last 20 years. But, but now kind of people are projecting that whole globalization debate onto technology, onto computers, kind of pretending that computers now are the low-wage substitutes of the future. And I think that's mistaken because unlike humans, which really can substitute for each other in the labor market, computers are just so different from people. So it's true that maybe, you know, you don't have uh, – to as many bank tellers now because, uh, because ATMs came mm-hmm. along. Right. So something, you know, plenty of humans do do things that computers can do, but humans can also do things that computers just can't and mm-hmm. probably never can. Uh, so, so you have actually more people working in the banking industry now than when there were a bunch of human tellers because now you have all sorts of, you know, uh, banking uh, consultants and, and brokers, you know, lenders, things like mm-hmm. that. Uh, no computer's ever going to, to do that. And because, humans are just so different. You know, we're good at kind of integrating uh, things across multiple disciplines. You know, we're good at making judgments of all sorts that computers can't do. Uh, And computers are really good at sort of raw crunching of massive amounts Mm -hmm. of data. I actually think, um, you know, computers are going to help people do a lot more things, a lot more interesting things 
so I wouldn't see them as, as threats. I'd kind of see them as friends. Mm-hmm. And then the question is, what, what new class of businesses you know, are going to be built in the next 10, 20, 30 years that are really going really gonna to bring out those distinctions? Right. And I, I usually ask these questions as if we were on the air, but I'm going to ask this question. We've only got a couple minutes left, so you'll have to keep your answer really short. I just want to make sure we get this in there, okay? Okay. Okay. You talk about the founder's paradox. What is that? Well, basically, uh, founders are, are, are really weird. They're, they're weird people. <laughs> Tell you know, me it, about it. <laughs> it, it, takes, it takes a certain class of crazy to, to go and start a business, um, you know, whether it's kind of a small business. Uh, brick and mortar or whether it's a big tech business. And the paradox is um, that, you know, founders can be, can be revered. Look at sort of Steve Jobs. They, they, they can have, they can inspire this sort of personality cult. They can be totally just adulated and worshipped by the crowd. And that very same dynamic is what makes it dangerous to be a founder because at the, at the drop of the hat, you know, if something goes wrong in a company, well, founders become scapegoats. I think the scapegoat mechanism is really powerful in our in our society, and we saw this with with Apple. You know, Steve Jobs founded mm-hmm. it; it's the hottest computer company. They go public; he's a multimillionaire. Well, then in 1985, he gets tossed out, right? You know, because Apple needs adult supervision, uh, and we've seen how powerful uh, you know the the the, the uh, return of Steve Jobs was. And so there's all these all these questions about who starts these businesses. Um, whether they're strange or whether they become stranger, you know, by virtue of actually being in the in the in the organization that they're running. But um, but I think we just have to be tolerant of, of all sorts of strangeness among entrepreneurs mm-hmm. because the the strangest are usually you know in some weird ways the very best. Yeah, I think you give several examples in your book of uh, founders who had actually made bombs while they were in school before they became founders. <laughs> So, yes, and yeah. so maybe making bombs isn't great, you know. Maybe you don't want to encourage that, right? Uh, but, um, but, but eccentric know, behavior definitely it, different ways it, of looking at things. There's something to it. There's yeah. something to it. One review I read of the book, and it said that people should read this book even if they don't have the slightest interest in business. Why do you think the reviewer said that? Well, we really try to. You know, I mean, we we give some business advice, some hardcore concrete, you know, blocking and tackling. But we're also talking about, hey, what's the future going to look like? What do we need to do to make it good? Um, that's not that's not just a question for for managers at, at corporations or something like that. Um, you know, we're we're inviting people to think, what is it that's made the U.S. singular and, and sort of exceptional uh, in its in its short history? Um, what can we do to make sure that that we don't just fall into you know, tracks where we copy things that already exist. Um, we get into this luck versus skill question that we talked about. Should our society, you know, do do whatever it can to get back to a more definite planning mindset? Um, I mean, we're talking about the future of, of energy and uh, why that's one of the most important problems that anybody, whether you're in a nonprofit context, a business context, uh, should be thinking about. So we really do try to, it's, it's sort of, uh, the metaphor I like to use is, chess boxing, which is a real sport. You play a round of chess or a round in the boxing ring, and then you go to a, to a chess board, and you mm-hmm. actually make a move. And so this, you know, thinking about things from this macro perspective that affects everybody and then drilling down to the micro of, of sort of managing a business, I think, it's, I think it's really important. So hopefully, you know, even if you're not managing a business, uh, the, the macro stuff is, is interesting enough to, to, to learn from and think about. It's absolutely fascinating. Blake, uh, you can get the book on Amazon.com. Is that the best place to go? Sure. Yeah, sounds good. 
Okay, so zero to one, notes on startups or how to build the future, whether you're interested in business or not, you can get it on Amazon.com. Blake, it's been wonderful chatting with you today. And it's been really uh, fun. Thanks, thanks for having me. Good luck with the book. Thank you. And if you'd like to learn more about how to grow your business, please visit our website at IThinkBigger.com. Follow us on Facebook, Thinking Bigger Business Media, or on Twitter at IThinkBigger. Have a great weekend. We'll see you next week. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.